Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, we're here today with Michelle Eichard talking about her new book, Eight Setbacks That Can Make a Child a Success. Michelle has designed a simple three-step approach to helping our teens bounce back from setbacks and learn important life lessons. In the book, she walks through eight of the biggest setbacks that teenagers often experience and shows us how we can respond as parents in a way that will help them bounce back. In today's episode, we are going to walk through the framework and dive deep into a few of the situations. And we'll end up with a set of tools for turning failure into success. Michelle Eichert has written for the Today Show parenting team, NBC News Learn, CNN Science and Wellness, and the Washington Post. She's also the author of 14 Talks by Age 14 and Middle School Makeover. She's been featured in the Chicago Tribune, Time, People, and is the author of the new book, Eight Setbacks That Can Make Your Child. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's great to be here. Thank you. I am really looking forward to this one. Uh, you've got a new book, Eight Setbacks That Can Make a Child a Success. Yes, brand new baby out there. Exciting. Congratulations. How did this concept come about for a book and, and what sort of uh, inspired you? To, to to do all this work to put this together. I, I actually came at this concept sort of through the side door. I'm really interested in sociology. I'm interested in um, coming of age. So I love a coming of age book. I love a good coming of age movie. I think that is the best genre out there. Um, my kids always joke when there's a new coming of age movie out there. Um, but conceptually, I'm fascinated by the idea of how different cultures and societies and people across time and geography and all different kinds of um, of different sort of barriers, how they usher young people towards adulthood, what that looks like for them and, and what is universally true. So it started there in a real kind of geeked out academic way. And it morphed into a deeper look at failure because Failure is a huge part of becoming an adult. It's actually a huge part of rites of passage into leaving childhood behind. I wanted to explore kind of the joy of failure and what it brings to our lives in really productive ways. Do you feel like there's something that people are kind of missing there or that there's something that kind of other books hadn't hadn't covered yet in terms of um, how to how parents can kind of leverage failure or, or respond to it? Yeah, I think we have a sort of cultural societal disconnect with failure. I think as parents, we're often really afraid of it for our kids. Like we get, we get it intellectually. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, definitely that's needed. Kids need to have oh, some some hardships and stuff like that. And 
Yeah, it all sounds good. In exactly, theory. but maybe not my kid. <laughs> <laughs> not my kid, not today. <laughs> so I wanted to sort of soften our hearts around this idea that even though watching your child go through a crisis, watching them go through a setback, a failure, a public face plant of any kind is painful. I did want to remove the shame around that. And I wanted to create space for us to talk about why that's going to help that kid become a really awesome adult. We talk a lot about values on this podcast, and I thought something interesting that you mentioned in your book about values or uh, values sometimes conflicting, just the, the very real um, situation that's going to occur as your uh, as your child uh, starts to decide what their values are, that they're going to be different than yours. How do you think or prepare people to deal with that or think about that? I think a lot of times parents think, well, if I instill my child with the right values, then they're probably not going to fail. They're probably not going to drink with their friends on a Friday night. They're probably not going to send a nude to another person, right? There's this idea that values can can be a protective element and they, they can be a really wonderful element in decision-making. But for young people, values can also be just a great way of self-exploration and they don't always stick. And they also can be a big part of identity formation when you're separating from your parents and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you believe in. Sometimes the process of figuring out your values begins by rejecting your parents' values because that's a way of saying, I'm independent. I think for myself, even though it's a little bit of a catch-22 there, if if your kid is saying, I think for myself, therefore I'm picking the opposite of what you picked. I got to start from somewhere. I might as well start from kind of as far away from you as I possibly can. It's a it's a pretty safe act of rebellion. I, I like it as a way for kids to explore who they are. And it, it can be shocking for parents who raise their kids in a religious home who then say, well, I don't believe in God or or the opposite. I have friends who are atheists whose child is a devout Christian and they're like, now how did this happen, <laughs> right? It, it, kids will pick the opposite of what their car- parents pick sometimes. And sometimes it sticks and sometimes it's just self-exploration. But what it never is, is a invisibility cloak that will take that kid and keep them safe from making mistakes. So that's where I wanted parents to really have a better understanding of what values do for you and what they don't. We think it's like values are something that we can sort of take and transplant into our kids. And okay, if we just raise them with these values, then that'll everything else will take care of itself or something like that. Um, I don't I don't think that that's really true. They're, they're going to develop their own values. It's important to talk about with them. Yeah. And a, a big thing that I'm seeing now, I don't know if you're encountering this a lot, is a lot of parents who are saying, how is my son speaking this way about women or about um, kids of other races or ethnicities? We did not raise him this way. What's going on? And there's this sort of YouTube culture where a lot of young men are expressing values that are so contrary to the way that their parents raised them. And I think that's another real shocking element to this. It feels like a big failure for young boys, but it's such an opportunity to have really important conversations if you're not so frightened of the difference 
in perceived value. Yeah, but it's easy to just like see red and go into start freaking out. Like, what? Are you, what? We didn't. We didn't teach you that. We didn't raise you to think like that or believe that. And I think yeah. It's how do you how do you kind of check yourself and not take it personally? Absolutely, it's so hard. But the, anyway, that's sort of the point of the book is getting you to get out of the frame of mind of taking it personally, making it shameful, being embarrassed by it, and getting to a place where you can help your kid grow from it and not stuck there. Pretty interesting. Um, you talk about some research by French Dutch ethnographer Arnold van Genep. Something about passing through some stages um, on a successful path to adulthood. Separation from the group, a time of being tested, learning and growth as a result of the test, and then return and reintegration with the group as a better version of oneself. Um, I love that. Yeah, the idea of a rite of passage and sort of uh, kind of the, the universal appearance of that um, throughout different cultures. Yeah, I think it's uh, really, well, it's just interesting to see that research. It's something that I definitely think about. Um, it's how do we kind of provide our kids with those types of possibilities? That that research, which has been around forever and has been used by lots of people in explaining adolescence, brings me a great deal of comfort because I like knowing that every kid everywhere kind of goes through the same process. So they differentiate, they pull away, they are separated from their family or their peer group, either by their own choice or not. Sometimes kids are iced out by their peers and sometimes they decide that they need a change. They break off, but they separate and then they learn something new about themselves in that process. And then they come back to the family or to their community of peers, knowing better being a better version of themselves. And it's looked different over centuries and over geography, but it is the same process no matter where a kid lives. That's really what it means to be an adult, to go through that. And knowing that and watching a kid who's struggling with their friends or who's made a really bad decision that's caused um, a break in in their sense of community, I'm comforted knowing, okay, this is the process <laughs> and we do this and it's painful and then learn and grow and then come back and be better. Yeah, I love that. And just how it that that's the natural flow. And and it really strikes me too how similar that is to the the hero's journey that it's like every every story that you read ever is the same basic kind of four steps that um, are in this research on kind of what is a rite of passage. And you talk about coming of age stories and everything, but really it's all always that um, similar sort of thing of having some yeah go, going away, getting in over your head a little bit and having to sort of figure something out and then coming back, uh, having learned a lesson or um, being being uh, uh, being changed in some way, and it's like uh, as much as we want to just give our kids everything, we you, you can't give them that because it it fundamentally involves get they go going away. Step one is they have to go away on their own in order to in order for it to work. So yeah, that's exactly it. That that hero's journey, that Joseph Campbell uh, sort of exploration of mythology like this is what this this is what the universal truth is here folks this is how it works right there's there's a big piece of that where we step aside and we say we'll be right here when you come back around again and that's really hard there's a little bit more than we can do a little bit more we can do than just stepping aside we can facilitate 
really great conversation with kids about this. And the, and the best way to do that is to be non-judgmental and not to freak out and say, I can't believe you did X. I raised you better than that. I can't, what, why in the world would you make that decision? When you do that, your kid's going to say, see you later, right? But if you're able to talk about this in a way that is free of judgment and that is really curious, more questions like, that must have been hard. Tell me what you did next and tell me how you felt when you did that. What are your thoughts about moving forward on this? That's going to get a kid to open up. So there's some direction in the book about how to move through this together side by side. You're not holding their hand and leading them, but it's a way to make sure that your kid doesn't get stuck in the mud and this failure doesn't become the headline of their childhood. So much of that also involves our reactions to what they're going through as parents. And I love how you break down um, some ideas on that or like understanding how what your go to response is when you feel a threat to your family and kind of get triggered or you talk about sort of fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Why is that important to understand as a parent? And how do you kind of assess that or use that information? I think so much of our Parental instincts go back to what we experienced as kids. I'm a flight person. I know this very well. I know that when I'm upset about something, my instinct is to say, well, fine, I'll never do that again, or I'll just leave for a few days, you know? (laughs) That's right. That's right. I'll show you. And no one on the other side of that has ever had an epiphany where they were like, oh man, I wasn't being grateful, right? (laughs) They're like, what's up with you and that really dramatic reaction? So if you, if you kind of know what your go-to is, you're, you're often your wrong instinct, right? Like that, that you're a person who freezes and you won't, you avoid conflict or, or like me, you're a flyer, uh, you run away from it or you fight. You're, you're just like instantly in that mode, whatever it is. And there's fun, right? So that's like, I'm just going to cloy all over you to make you like me. I'm a people pleaser. So what that is, you can explore the possibility of using other tools. So I, Maslow said, um, if you're, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like if you're a carpenter, everything looks like a nail, right? So you're going to use the tool you have and and make every problem fit the tool that you have, right? (laughs) But instead, if you say, all right, I'm typically polite. What if instead I stayed and engaged? What if I asked some questions? Um, What if I sat here quietly and listened instead of flying off the handle? So doing that can be such a nice way to change the situation before you get too far into it. And it's like finding balance, I think, or finding the more appropriate response because not not the answer is really never one. One is always the answer, but we just tend to sort of habitually go down that one pathway kind of every time we we get feel threatened or get triggered. And I love that just kind of uh, seeing how that applies to your parenting and things too. And yeah, you really spell it out well in the book, I think, because uh, yeah, that uh noticing those reactions and sort of how when something's going on with your child what what what's your patterns then i think it yeah, gives you so much more awareness to be able to step back and start saying hey wait a minute i'm going down that i'm going down that path again <laughs> uh hold on yeah and maybe it's the right path but maybe it's not you won't know until you kind of look at your different options and try a few things try the wrench try the screwdriver not just the hammer and see how they work for you
Hey, you're talking here about body changing. And um, I thought you had a really good uh, response to some of these things in here, just in terms of you have some sections where you kind of have questions from parents and you go into answers. Yeah, it's it's hard to know what to do sometimes as a parent when you feel like you're really like your 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 child's not eating the way you would want them to eat or they're eating really a lot of junk food or they're eating really some it seems to um maybe they're not eating enough or i'm kind of i always feel like uh, approaching issues around food is just really uh, kind of difficult and sensitive i wonder what you how you recommend that people think about that sometimes it appears to us that our child is failing to take their health or their body caring for their body seriously and it it can feel like a failure like why is my child not treating their body better why are they eating cheetos every day why do they only want to drink soda why and we have these ideas about some food being good and some food being bad and our child making sort of moral choices about their body based on what they're putting into it i will tell you that i am not a nutritionist but i am very interested in this field i just watch the space pretty carefully um, a couple things i know to be true based on what I'm studying that that the experts are saying is that it doesn't do our kids any good to make judgments on how they are feeding themselves. So remove morality and emotion from feeding entirely. Kids really, there's a division of responsibility that Ellen Satter, who's a nutritionist I love, talks about. The responsibility that a parent has is deciding what you'll serve and when you'll serve it. Your child gets to decide whether they eat at all, how much they will eat, when they stop, when they feel full, and if they just want bread. If you have bread on the table and they say no to the pork and no to the green beans and they only want the bread, that's their choice. All you do is make it accessible to them. And you want to make enough of the really exciting foods that are full of fat and flavor, <laughs> available so your child isn't craving them either because it's a forbidden thing or because it just tastes delicious. Oreos are yummy, right? So you want to have enough of that stuff around so that they don't feel like in order to satisfy themselves, they have to go elsewhere or be secretive about how they eat. So that's kind of my approach to this based on what I've, the research that I've done. And I think it's just a misunderstanding that a lot of adults have, again, probably based on how their parents reacted to their changing bodies and to how they ate food. But there's enough good resources out there that, that we can shift our mindset on that. It's much better for kids. That's a really uh, good point uh, just to think about, I guess, or when we have value judgments on anything really then it just kind of forces the behaviors underground more uh it it doesn't necessarily make it stop it just makes your makes your kids know they can't really talk to you about it or that if they are doing it they should kind of be quiet about it that's right i that the idea of of making them sneaky and a parent might say i'm not making them sneak i'm just not allowing them to have soda every day well that's fine to say that to yourself but the reality is if your child really wants soda and you're not allowing some amount you don't have to say soda with every meal but if you're not allowing some amount of acts to that then they are gonna have to sneak or yeah make it make a choice <laughs> between uh being being honest with you or um uh doing something that yeah they don't really want <laughs> or their friends are doing or whatever i would think that most parents want their home to be a place where their middle and high school age kids want to bring people around it's frustrating for parents when they say why won't you uh, my kid ever 
hang out at our house. They only go to their friends' houses. And one of the easiest ways to do that is by having really awesome snacks. Like just, you might not love Doritos and Coke, but if your garage fridge has Dr. Pepper in it and you have Doritos in the pantry and it's not an everyday thing, but it's like, yeah, man, when your friends come over, you guys help yourselves and hang out and shoot baskets and have a Dr. Pepper. Suddenly your house is a cool place to hang out. And I think there is tremendous value in that above and beyond any nutritional considerations. Mm, that's a, such a great point. Yeah. Um, the trade-offs, <laughs> I think also with a lot of this stuff, it's like we, um, again, with thinking about your reaction or what those kind of different ways that you can get triggered. A lot of times it's, it's when we're our feel, we feel like our kids are really kind of sneaking around or yeah, going behind our back with things. Maybe we're kind of being we're we're fight mode. <laughs> we're getting triggered in fight mode, and that's what's cause that's what's causing them to feel like they have to sneak around on us is because when the when when we find out about these things, we, we get really pissed off. <laughs> we go we lose it or <laughs> go off the handle. When they've learned that, wow, it's really kind of better to just uh, just keep this a little quiet and <laughs> not let uh not let my parents um, know, know that I'm doing this or find out about this because they kind of can't handle it. And so I think it kind of connects also with what we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that this is not to say, Hey, your kid gets a free pass to do whatever they want. And you just have to say, okay, dear, because you don't want to create a sneaky kid or create conflict. But what kids can really handle debate and they can handle negotiation and they love negotiation and they're really excellent at compromise. But when they feel like there is no shot at that, when they feel like they can't say, I want to stay out later because everyone else is staying out later, or I want to be able to go to this party because all the kids in my class are going and there's not a shot at negotiating with you reasonably. It's going to be a fight or you're going to shut it down because you're really strict or really firm. That's when kids are going to say exactly what you just said. Better if I don't ruffle anybody's feathers. We're here with Michelle Eichard talking about how parents can help our teens bounce back from failure. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. It's, it's absolutely normal for kids to put themselves first in most scenarios. They're really egocentric in their thinking, and that's developmentally appropriate. Where I would say there are some lines that can be crossed is if your child is doing things that are intentionally hurtful to other members of the family. That is a source of great anxiety for parents if they see their child floundering socially, if their child struggles with making friends or keeping friends. I mean, I talked to parents who said, my child jumps from best friend to best friend and is never really satisfied. And Or my child cannot find a friend. They're struggling with being accepted by their peers. So, but I think parents should look at what the pattern is here. If it's, for example, a kid who's being rejected by their peers consistently. Maybe they've even changed schools to try a fresh start. Maybe they've tried different soccer teams or whatever it is, and it just never works out. Then maybe that kid needs some help with um, their behavior that's off-putting to other kids. Then they probably need some help some resources and some help. And the parents might need a little bit of help too because parents might be so desperate for the kid to make those friendships that they are willing to overlook what is not working out. I think parents often jump to a conclusion when they find something that they feel is evident. 
conclusions. And it may be that your conclusion is exactly right, but it may be that it's not. Usually I think it's helpful to give a free pass the first time. So you could say something like, hey, I found this. It's probably not yours. I'm sure one of your friends accidentally fell out of their pocket, but it brings up something that I think we should talk about. Definitely downplay your suspicion, but what you're doing is encouraging your kid to talk to you about these things. Um, Once you've done that, you can say, so here's the rule going forward. There's no vaping in our house. And if I find a vape cartridge, I'm going to assume that it belongs to you. Want to hear the full episode? Head over to talkingtoteens.com slash register for a free trial of our premium podcast. You get exclusive access to loads of great content with no obligation. And your membership supports the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Get started today with a free trial over at talkingtoteens.com slash register. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.